You are listening to Tell It From Calvary, a ministry of Calvary Baptist Church, New York City, where we preach Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. The following sermon is by Dr. Ed Stetzer, author, missiologist, and interim teaching pastor at Calvary. For upcoming events and services, visit our website at cbcnyc.org. And now, here is today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. So, ushers, I'm going to ask you to do something in just a second for the ushers, just so they're aware. Um, Partly because I want to make sure that as we move into our Lord's Supper service that we have to take a pause. I want to go right from the message into the Lord's Supper. So if you didn't receive one of these, ushers, if you could get some of those little baskets ready so we can distribute. Uh, We're going to do that now, though. So if you didn't receive one of these when you came in, if you'll raise your hand, our ushers will get those to you. So just raise your hand. Some over here as well. By the way, let me also mention a couple other things. Just get all this out of the way at the beginning. They're getting those baskets. I'll tell them to, I'll, when they come back in, we'll have to raise your hand again. If you're watching online, let me encourage you as well to assemble accordingly. Uh, you heard Bernayo talk about a little earlier about that as well. Um, and so want you to be aware of uh, the Lord's Supper is going to come right after the message. So we'll be ready for that. If you are watching on Facebook, do me a favor, like and share so other people can be aware of this as well. And then we're going to go through our message. We're going to go right into the Lord's Supper together and step into a time of worship right after seamlessly. So, okay. So here they are now. So if you'll raise your hand, if you need some of these, um, if you need a cup and, and I'm going to explain while they're just raise your hand, they're going to get to you um, just to prepare ahead of time. Uh, we're going to do that by, um, by, uh, by, by peeling the top off. I'm going to explain how it works. You're going to peel the top off of this, and then having peeled the top off of this, you can then uh, get the bread out and then get the cup out as well. I know it's a little more awkward, but it's the world in which we're living. Brunel down front needs as well over here when someone gets a chance to come over here, and some more folks over here as well. So make sure we're getting all those. We're distributing them around, working our way around. So real simple. If you want to now, I've peeled half the way, so I've already got the bread ready to go, and then right after that you peel. So it's two levels of plastic want you to be aware as well. They're working their way over there. They'll get to you guys in just a second. If you have a Bible, you can take it out. Matthew chapter 4 is going to be our text. Let me explain a little bit what we're doing. You might be asking, hey, I thought we were in Philippians, and we actually are in Philippians. We have one more week left in Philippians, but let me just tell you, I know we're meeting in person, and I didn't want to take the final week in Philippians to do the last few kind of goodbye verses, you know, say hi to so-and-so, and I love you, and goodbye. And so we're actually going to launch Matthew here, and Matthew's going to be the book that we're going to study as we go through the next few weeks and months together. But I'm actually doing a three-week introduction because of the way the timing falls, a three-week introduction to Matthew by looking at big themes in Matthew. And today we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry because I didn't want to start the begats when we were in person either. Not that the begats aren't awesome. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. We're going to get those. There's amazing gospel truth in the begats. Then we're going to start that in just a few weeks. Here we go. Burnell's got his. We got everyone else. Good. Okay, so anyone else? Raise your hand. We'll get those to you. I think we've got everybody covered. All right, excellent. So this will enable us to just go right into the, uh, the sermon, into the Lord's Supper. Okay, so by now, you should have your Bibles open or on. I see you have an on. I see that. I understand. I understand. The hipsters, you know, they got the Bibles on. Uh, so if you got your Bible on or open, here's the message today. It's called the subversive kingdom, because what I want to begin with today is to lay out for you 
a theme that is woven throughout the Gospel of Matthew that's essential for us to understand, and that is the theme and the teaching of the kingdom of God. So we're calling this the subversive kingdom. Now, I will tell you, if you would like to go deeper on this subject, I'll just be full, full disclosure, this is not a sermon that I have only preached once. I have actually written a whole book called The Subversive Kingdom based on this verse. And so I'm rather passionate about this. So as we began to put this together, I said, let me start with the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and what he begins to say and then says on, says on an ongoing basis. So I'm going to read more than is on the screen just now. So don't like panic that I'm reading more than's on the screen, but I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and in just a moment we'll put up the verse that's going to be our main focal verse, but in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12, it says this. It's not on the screen. Follow along with me in your Bible. Good habit to bring your Bible. Paper Bible is even good. We're going to write in those sometimes. It says, now when he had heard, this is Matthew 4, 12, now when he had heard, that's Jesus had heard, that John, that's John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Gentile, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness, this sounds probably familiar because we read this at Christmas time, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then verse 17, which will be on the screen, says this, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A couple of key phrases here, right? One of them is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are often used interchangeably in the Bible, but in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things we're going to learn is Matthew's written to a primarily Jewish Christian audience who wouldn't use the name of God as regularly and readily. So Jesus is quoted here as saying the kingdom of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what I want you not to miss is, is that the kingdom of God is a central focus of the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see this as we walk through the gospel of Matthew together. Jesus talks about the kingdom more than 80 times, and it's not just idle talk. For Jesus, the kingdom is absolutely and presently relevant. More than that, he says it with present tense force. It's breaking into the world. He says the kingdom of God is near or at hand, something to be dealt with right now. This is a theme throughout Matthew. There are parables about it. There's teaching about it. So I'm beginning today by giving us the big theme that the kingdom, the subversive kingdom, is at hand. You say, why is it subversive? We're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, now, why? Because his followers are people who are going to seek first the kingdom, meaning there's nothing more important than finding out and living out the values of the kingdom. So, verses 12 through 16 are a prelude to that, leading up to verse 17 by attaching the promises of the Old Testament to the teaching of the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, the message becomes clear. Here it is. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, don't be surprised by this, right? If you're a reader of the Old Testament, God's been promising to build a kingdom with a great king, and that king and kingdom would bless the whole earth and set everything back and right the way 
it was and the way it should be. Literally, the prophecies told of the kingdom and his kingship stretch all the way back to the Garden of Eden and are found to the end of the Old Testament. So the kingdom was coming. As the Old Testament develops, we get a fuller and fuller picture of what this kingdom would look like. And it builds as the people of Israel wonder, when will the promise of this kingdom and this anointed Messiah King ever come about? And so we're going to look through these passages, and weeks from now we'll actually get to Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. We won't unpack that now, but there Jesus gives a picture of what the kingdom will fully look like. He tells what he's going to come and why he's come to earth and more. He says he'll bring God's kingdom to earth by preaching the good news, healing the sick, casting out demons, and the kingdom of God will become completely real and evident and eventually cover the whole earth. Now, the Jewish people wanted God's kingdom to be overt and overthrowing. You can imagine why they, why they might. They had been oppressed under Roman rule. They had actually centuries of being uh, passed back and forth between occupying empires, and, and yet times of, of, of bright future and then times of disappointment and destruction. So they wanted the kingdom to be overt and overthrowing. They were looking for a king and a kingdom who would break the bonds that the Romans had on them. They hated the Roman oppression. You would too. They yearned for complete liberation. And many people looked to Jesus as Messiah to overthrow the Romans and establish God's harmony and peace throughout the land and ultimately the world. But Jesus was saying something else. He says, I'm going to show what the kingdom of God looks like. No one's sick. No one's broken. No one is ill. His healings were instant, total, and clear. He didn't make people feel a little better. He completely healed them with the power of heaven. Jesus came and revealed the hope of the kingdom. B.B. Warfield put it this way. Let me read a quote. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. The signs which accompany his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he bought from, brought from heaven, which is his home. The number of miracles he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that in effect, he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. One touch of the hem of his garment that he wore could medicine whole countries of their pain. One touch of that pale hand could restore life. So we begin by understanding that the kingdom is coming here in Matthew in a way that the people didn't expect and in some cases didn't appreciate. It kind of explains some of why people would cheer his name as he came into Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord and then who would run away and in some cases deny and in other places curse that very name. So to look at the kingdom of God, which we'll walk through the gospel of Matthew together the next weeks, few weeks and months, after we finish Philippians, we are not leaving Philippians behind um, after we finish Philippians. But let's start with number one in our outline to understand the reign of God, the reign or rule, kingship, right? The authority, the reign of God. Just taking that simple sentence, right? The kingdom of heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I'm going to take the word repent and I'm going to not cover that right now. Now, don't, don't worry, I'm going to cover it at the end, but I want to get the reason for the repentance before we get to the repentance, right? So it says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So number one, the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. So let's remember a few key things related to the kingdom of heaven. First, there's God. 
right? There's God. And don't forget that when we talk about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, what we're talking about is a God-ruled kingdom and ultimately a God-ruled world. Now, here's the thing I don't want you to miss, right? Sometimes people misunderstand and think, okay, so when Jesus came, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. At that point, the rule of God was made real. Actually, no. Actually, if you look at Psalm 47, God rules over everything from heaven in Psalm 47, which is written centuries before Jesus is born. It says things like this, clap your hands, all peoples. You don't need to turn there for the sake of time. Shout to the Lord with loud songs of joy. The Lord the Most High is a great king over all the earth. So before God the Son was born Jesus the Christ, God the Father was king over the whole earth. There's never been a time when God has not been king. There's never been, it says in verse 8, God rules over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. So from his throne in heaven, there's never been a time when God hasn't ruled over all. You say, Ed, it doesn't feel like that. Now, stay with me. I'm going to get to that, right? But from his throne in heaven, there's never been a time when God has not ruled over all. In Psalm 103, verse 19, on your screen, it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. His throne in the heavens, there's never been a time, and it's still true now, he has ruled over all. We call that the sovereignty of God. And it's important that we understand that. You say, well, what's going on in the world? We're going to get to that. You see, the world is in rebellion against the rightful rule of a good, holy, sovereign, perfect God. So God from, rules from his throne in heaven. So what about the world? Let's look at the world for just a second. In Ephesians chapter 2, the description of the world is a description of how Christians used to be, but it speaks to the condition of the world today. So Paul writes to the Christians and says, oh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now worked in the sons of disobedience. So without Christ, right, the world is in rebellion to the rightful rule of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God. So, God, from his throne in heaven, rules over all, but our world is in rebellion to the rightful reign of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God. And because of that, dead, dead in the trespasses and sins that we walked. So, I don't want you to miss this, right? So, the whole world around us, right? And maybe you're a guest here today, and we're super glad that you're here. And maybe you're watching online today, and we're super glad you're watching online. No one's getting left behind at Calvary in our own time, in our own place, in our own space. We're working towards regathering. We want to tell you we're gathering safely. We're glad we're here. We want to encourage you to come join us again as we do this again in March. But again, nobody gets left behind. But regardless, if you're a guest, if you're watching online, and you're not a follower of Jesus, it's not that you need some religion in your life, is that you are spiritually dead, not my words, the words of the Bible. Jesus actually says you have to be born again. Why? Because you're spiritually dead. So the world, remember God from his throne in heaven rules over all. Our world is in rebellion against the sovereign rule of God. And as such, people are spiritually dead in their trespasses and their sins. So here we find ourselves, the world in rebellion. So there's God ruling from his throne over all, the world in rebellion. So what about Christians? 
Okay, what about Christians? Are we like better? Are we like, are, are we like more exalted? Well, no, actually. Let's look at the description of Christians, right? It says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. So what's the domain of darkness? For God from his throne in heaven rules over all. Our world is in rebellion to the rightful reign of a good, holy, sovereign, and perfect God. Therefore, dead in trespasses and sins, in darkness, in this world. Then it says, he, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, I have noticed, just getting to know you, just we don't meet together too often and we're wearing masks, but where I come from, after someone reads a verse like that, the, an amen is an appropriate response. Amen. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that again. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. All right. All right. Now, maybe we've got different kinds of Baptists around here, but Baptists that I know know how to amen. So the reign of God begins, right? God from his throne in heaven rules over all. The world is in rebellion. God is transferring, even in a rebellious world, he has transferred us as followers of Jesus from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, the reality is you're looking and I'm looking, and you're saying, you know, this world doesn't seem like it's rightfully submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So what's going on? Number one is the reign of God. Number two is a theological conversation. It's called already but not yet. Already but not yet. I'm going to explain. But the key word here is, is. The kingdom of heaven, right? We're going through this word, these words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is maybe the shortest point as we go word by word, verse by verse through Matthew, is simply the word is. The kingdom of heaven is. Not maybe one day might, or not saying it kind of come later, but it says the kingdom of heaven is. Would you say that word with me? Is. Right now. Is. Not will be, not one day, is. The kingdom of heaven is. Now, we're going to learn some theological language to get to this, right? One of my favorite expressions is, if you can learn to order coffee at Starbucks, you can learn some theological language at church. Um, I don't speak Starbucks. I don't drink coffee. Um, I think coffee is gross. And so I just wanted to show thank you. It's, I think it's just you and me, sister. Oh, there's a couple. There's a couple of people who have seen the true gospel. Um, when I was young, my mother said to me, here, so I was, I was, I don't know, I was eight or nine, she gave me coffee, and I said, oh, that's terrible. She says, well, you just have to get used to it. And even at eight or nine, I knew, you shouldn't have to get used to a product to enjoy it. But the phrase is not about coffee. The phrase about already and not yet is this phrase. It's inaugurated eschatology. Now, I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to ask you to say it with me. Inaugurated eschatology. Now, ready? So, let's say it. So, I'll say inaugurated. Here it is. Inaugurated and then eschatology, eschatology. Two big words, but you already recognize one of them for sure, inaugurated, because we just had an inauguration, right? So um, very different than one we've ever seen before, for sure. But in an inauguration, it is the beginning of somebody's term, right? A president, a prime minister, whatever, they're inaugurated. It's the beginning. And eschatology is ultimately the revealing of all things and the completion 
of all things. We sometimes refer to it as end times theology, but it's much more than that because the end of all things has actually begun in Christ. We live in the end times. People say, are we in the end times? Yep, we've been in the end times since Jesus was resurrected. So inaugurated eschatology is this idea because people look in the Bible and they see Jesus say things like the kingdom of God is at hand. And then we look and say this world is still a big stinking mess. So how can the kingdom of God be at hand? Yet the Bible says we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. How can these things be simultaneously true? How can it be that ultimately the kingdom of God has come but the world seems still not to be done. So is the kingdom really here? So theologians use the phrase inaugurated, it has begun, eschatology, it's not yet fully done. Because it sure doesn't seem like everything's set back right. It sure doesn't seem like there's a king reigning in all righteousness over every life. It sure doesn't seem like the enemies of God are being defeated. But is the kingdom really here? Well, the New Testament's super clear in multiple places, Jesus' words and elsewhere, that the kingdom of God is among us. New Testament is super clear in multiple places that the kingdom of God is still future, right? Think of it this way. Don't we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But now let us through, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. And then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So which is it? And the answer is yes. It's, it's both. George Ladd sums it this way. He says, the kingdom of God is a present reality and yet a future blessing. Kingdom of God is a present reality, yet also a future blessing, right? So God's kingdom is this present kingdom. In Matthew 10, 7, Jesus says, as you go announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is here, has spiritual origin, purpose, authority, and power, but it has come here. You're citizens of it. We're serving as instruments of the kingdom. And Matthew 10, 8 gives us a picture of what that looks like. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with skin diseases, drive out demons. You've received free of charge, give free of charge. We just, not far from Christmas, right? In COVID time, bless you, brother. I just can't not say bless you. In COVID times, Christmas seems like six years ago, but Christmas was just a couple of months ago. I bet some along the way you heard this verse verses. It's Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us will be born, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. Right? Right? You know that. Right? You've heard that before. Sure. If you've been in church, you heard it. Someone walked by. It was on a sign. And then it says, and the government will be on his shoulders. I don't know about you, but I am not of the current view that the government is completely submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a rosier understanding of current governmental systems and processes. But if anything, it doesn't look to me, so what's going on in that verse? I mean, it says the government will be his shoulder. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. Wait a second, the dominion doesn't seem to be vast. I know followers of Jesus in some places who are huddled in persecution reading this verse, but they don't read this verse thinking that it's now. They read this verse thinking that this is to come. Some has come, but it's not yet done. So let me give an example that may help. Um, World War II is a picture of these things. Last night I was sitting in my hotel and um, watched um, 1917. 
Are we, are we, are we, uh, where, where, where's Jim, Jim? Are we, are we allowed to watch movies here at the church? Okay. Okay, a friend of mine was telling me about a movie he watched called 1917. I didn't watch it, because I'm a Christian. Um, you know, war, right? Powerful picture. Story of courage and more. And I knew I was going to share this example today, and it made me think even more on this. My example's from World War II. And I bet, matter of fact, let's just see. Um, June 6, 1944, what is it? Shout out the date. D-Day. Right, exactly. So it's D-Day. D-Day. Many of us would know D-Day is June 6, 1944, the amphibious landing of 160,000 soldiers on the beaches of Normandy, along with 24,000 paratroopers who, who coasted down to land amid foggy darkness and tracer fire to put the Allied troops within the range of German soil for the first time. After months of planning an assault on Nazi batteries, this successful advance along 50 miles of coastline, forged against daunting odds and the cost of 9,000 lives, actually dealt a crushing blow to the enemy's hopes. D-Day was the beginning of the end of World War II. Now, if D-Day had not successfully happened, then ultimately we would have probably lost the war. Britain would have fallen because if somehow somebody would find out, the information would be leaked, the Germans wouldn't be ready, the advance of Nazism could actually have continued. But D-Day was not the end of the war. By no means was it the end of the war. For almost another year, the fighting raged on. More people died, actually, from that stretch of the war than any other time. Across France, into Germany, the Battle of the Bulge, where the Nazis pushed back across the Rhine. But knowing their cause was just, knowing how much was at stake, and knowing they had already sealed the war's ultimate outcome with their Normandy invasion, the Allies kept pushing to the bitter end, to the streets of Berlin, And finally, on a day when much fewer of us would know, May 7th, 1944, uh, excuse me, 45, a week after Hitler's apparent suicide in a bomb shelter, uh, it is VE Day. So VE Day, the war was officially over. On D-Day, on D-Day, the end of the war was inaugurated. Everyone knew, actually. That at this point, that's why the papers were filled with the news of this one victory. Because everybody knew if they could win at D-Day, ultimately there would come a V-E day. So on D-Day, the end of the war was inaugurated. On V-E day, Victory in Europe day, the end of the war was consummated. It was finished. And this wartime analogy paints a picture of what kingdom life is like in the timeline of history what kingdom life is like today. The kingdom's inauguration occurred when Jesus appears on earth in flesh, dealing a subversive beginning of the end to Satan's oppressive rule over humanity. The evil tyranny that had begun with Adam and Eve's prideful fall. And so when Jesus steps out of the tomb, a resurrection savior, his victory over death, hell, and the grave was a done deal. He says it is finished, because it is, and it was. But the battle, in a sense, rages on at the same time. So from Christ's ascension to this very day, we're on this mission to show and share the love of Jesus, to, to be instruments of his kingdom in the world while he 
is at work making the world more like he would have it to be. Now, ultimately, in the midst of this, we, for example, we serve, we engage the streets of New York City together so we might make the world more like Jesus would want it to be, so that we might make it so that his kingdom might come and his will might be done more readily and more fully here. When we do these things, when we share the gospel, this is how we lead and how we engage kingdom ministry between the times. Key phrase, between the times. Now, mind you, um, in my understanding of theology and how things end, it appears that sometimes we advance, the kingdom is advanced, and we get to be a part of that. And sometimes, like the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, the forces of darkness push back. Because I've walked through what is present-day Turkey, and you can go to all these places where the church at Philippi and the church at Ephesus was, and they're not there anymore. But the kingdom is still at work, and the kingdom is still here. And as best I understand it, your theology and mine is that Jesus comes back, sets things right, and then the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and King. But for now, we work between the times as instruments of the kingdom. You may have noticed the spirituals in our service. I hope you did. It's Black History Month, and we have only one service, so the opportunity to engage and to celebrate some of the heritage and history and Black History Month is an encouraging time for us to do so. There's a famous sermon, a 20th century sermon, that helps frame this conversation. The sermon was actually done by a black pastor named uh, S.M. Lockridge. S.M. Lockridge. You may have heard a video or a sound clip where he talks about, that's my king. That's his sermon, that's my king. But he's also known for another sermon that actually got picked up actually by, by, by a sociologist and a different pastor who communicated in different places. But S.M. Lockridge, by the way, can I just tell you what his name is? I love it. It's actually Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. Isn't that the greatest name ever? I love that. He was at Calvary Baptist Church, a prominent African-American congregation in San Diego, California. And one of the sermons that he was known for was a sermon called, It's Friday, but Sunday's a coming. And we, some of you heard it later on, Tony Campolo sort of made it, introduced it maybe into other audiences, but, but there, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, and the sermon, and I, I couldn't do it justice, but they're bookends of God's kingdom calendar, right? We live between Good Friday, where Jesus has said, it is finished. And when he says it is finished, in doing so, we get a picture that, that God's plan is being accomplished. But, but in his sermon, he would say, and there's a cadence that I would not do well to imitate, but there's a brilliant cadence to it. It's Friday, and Mary's crying, but Sunday's a coming. It's Friday, and the disciples are hiding, but Sunday's a coming, and, and the cadence would build. It's Friday, and it's dark and death and gloomy, but Jesus has made a promise, and Sunday's a coming. And it would build with this energy energy and you could feel it and you could engage with it because it's right. Because the reality is when Jesus says it is finished, he's making a statement of declaration that he indeed will defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. But Sunday's still a coming. And when Sunday comes, the resurrection validates and it's a testimony that indeed God is victorious. But what he has done in that sermon is moved us from that moment in history 2,000 years ago to the fact that between the bookends of kingdom calendar, we live between the Good Friday of kingdom conquest and the Easter Sunday of kingdom coronation. And where does that leave us? 
We're people who are living in the already, but the not yet. So COVID-19 continues to impact us. And the economic challenges are there. And we see in the last year, we dealt with issues of racial injustice and more. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. And the reminder for all of us is that this is why we still pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Philip Yancey puts it this way. He says, it's Friday, Sundays are coming, but it's Saturday on planet earth. And he goes on to say, and Saturday is a work day. So we join Jesus on his mission. I just noticed that I'm going long. And I don't care. <laughs> Number three of four points is the present kingdom, is the present kingdom. At hand, it says, at hand. The present kingdom. It's here. It's now. It's at hand. We're citizens of the kingdom. We're instruments of the kingdom. In Matthew 10, 7, Jesus says, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Luke chapter 17, the Pharisees come to Jesus and say, when will the kingdom of God come? And he says, it's not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look here, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Because the kingdom has come when the king has come. And then the king has made us citizens of his kingdom, and now we are citizens of that kingdom. Are you okay with one more historic example? So when I was, um, I'm a New Yorker. I just recently found out, talking to my dad and my mom, that I was born in Jewish hospital in Manhasset, and they brought me home to Floral Park, about three blocks outside of Queens. There's a Floral Park neighborhood in Queens and a Floral Park neighborhood outside of Queens. And they brought me home, and I just found a picture. I tweeted it. I found a picture, well, I mean, using Google Maps. And so I was brought home to a house, not a house, to a, to a little apartment in the back alley. You had to walk by the fire station and around a bar to get to the backside. I was born in an apartment between a funeral home and a bar <laughs> with a fire station behind it, which explains so much about me. <laughs> explains so much about me. Um, and then eventually we moved to Tennessee. So we lived in Tennessee. And so my daughters, they say, um, they say fixin' and y'all. And it's just stunning to me. I'm like, what's the matter with you guys? Um, but they lived ten, a decade in Tennessee. So they went to their elementary school in Tennessee. So they had to study, just like I studied New York history in elementary school. I know about Clinton's Ditch and all that sort of stuff, right? About the famous, you know, famous canal that was across the state. Um, and so they're learning Tennessee history. I know anything about Tennessee history, so I'm a good dad. I'm trying to help them do their history. And so I start learning about Tennessee history. And Tennessee has, it's a long state. It has what's called three grand divisions. There's, there's uh, East Tennessee. There's West Tennessee and there's Middle Tennessee. East Tennessee is kind of Knoxville and Cleveland, Tennessee and Chattanooga. Middle Tennessee is Nashville, then Memphis is West Tennessee. Anybody from Tennessee at any point in your life? Anyone tracking with me on that? Nobody uh, at all. We got very much. Okay, good, good, good. Where in Tennessee? Where in Tennessee? Where? Chattanooga. Chattanooga, Chattanooga right? Uh, sea Rock City. Uh, there's a sign every day on I-75, you'll see Sea Rock City. So Chattanooga's in East Tennessee, right? This is going to be important because this uh, comes. Chad, so Chad is going to be our example today. 
This isn't going to end well for you, brother. Um, <laughs> so Tennessee was actually uh, the last, or one of the last states to join the Confederacy in the Civil War. Let me tell you a little bit why. So um, Tennessee was actually divided on the issue, declared itself neutral during the Civil War, partly because West Tennessee, which is heavily dependent on slave labor and heavily dependent on cotton, uh, wanted to join the Civil War. Um, and East Tennessee was actually very much pro-union. It's actually a county, your county, Union County in Chattanooga, or is that nearby? Hamilton County. So Union County is over there as well, and um, I think it might be up a little more from there. But very much East Tennessee, for example, Shelbyville, which is more Middle Tennessee, but sort of begins East Tennessee, was called Little Boston, uh, partly because the people who inhabit, in, inhabited East Tennessee, uh, there, were, there, were, there was not the agricultural realities as well. Some of them were from immigrants from Scotland, and they themselves had experienced depression and more. So Middle Tennessee was kind of neutral, so the state couldn't come to an inclusion. It declared itself neutral. Uh, then the war began, and the, the sentiments began to shift in Middle Tennessee. Remember, West Tennessee was always in favor of seceding and joining the Confederacy, and eventually the state did. Now, what you may not know, and I didn't know until I lived in Tennessee, was that the moment that Tennessee seceded from the Union to join the Confederacy, uh, East Tennessee seceded from Tennessee. And it's actually pretty interesting. So what happens is East Tennessee, your people, actually leave Tennessee, and it doesn't go well for them because Tennessee then invades East Tennessee. There's all, all, something of a, of a little mini civil war that takes place within Tennessee. But Tennessee said that East Tennessee said this, this leaving the Union is illegal and illegitimate. Actually, that would later be what President Lincoln would say. The Supreme Court would agree. So when ultimately the Civil War was over, there was not anybody rejoining the Union. You never left. It was an illegal and illegitimate rebellion. The whole time, you were still part of the United States. You could call yourself whatever you want, but your rebellion was illegal and illegitimate. It wasn't real. It doesn't count. You're always a rightful part of the United States. So Reconstruction was not joining back into the Union, it was helping you to reacclimate to the fact that you never legally left. If you saw the movie Lincoln, you saw specifically Daniel A. Lewis explain and make that very argument. And that's what East Tennessee said from the beginning. So East Tennessee was in a state that joined the rebellion, a rebellion against the rightful rule of the elected government of the United States that was led at that time by Abraham Lincoln. They were in an illegal and illegitimate rebellion. And the people of East Tennessee said, we are not a part of this. We recognize the legal and legitimate rule of the nation called the United States. There's, we never were a part of something called the Confederate States of America or more. So here's what I don't want you to miss, right? So in the midst of the rebellion, right, as followers of Jesus, we're in a world that's in rebellion against the rightful reign of the legitimate king and ruler of the whole world. But we are not acknowledging that rebellion. We're not part of that rebellion. We bow our knee to King Jesus. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So we're not participating in that rebellion. We've actually been freed from that rebellion to recognize the rightful reign of a good, holy, and sovereign, perfect God. 
So the people of East Tennessee, having themselves said, no, you, the, our whole world may be in rebellion, but we're not. We're part of the union. Actually, literally the South called themselves the rebels. They were in rebellion. And so I don't want you to miss this because East Tennessee, the people of East Tennessee were the rebellion against the rebellion. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're basically a citizen of East Tennessee. Like Chad, you're part of the rebellion against the rebellion. Because just as they refuse to acknowledge an illegitimate and illegal secession or rebellion, so it is that followers of Jesus say, no, this present kingdom is here now. The world can be drawn up and drawn away and in its dead spiritual reality can ultimately walk away from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but it doesn't change that he is still the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So, so much of what we do is to tell the world that Jesus is King and they have to acknowledge him, which leads us to number four and finally, and I'll close with this, the rightful response. I start by skipping the first two words, repent because, but they're so important. You see, repentance is part of how we even respond by grace and through faith are born again to become citizens of this kingdom. We've repented of the world's rebellion, and now we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So repentance is literally to change your mind about something. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, the kingdom has come, and the king has called you to receive by grace and through faith to repent of your sin, to trust and follow him as Savior and Lord. And I invite you to that reality. If you are a follower of Jesus, do you know you never stop repenting? I mean, ultimately, until Jesus comes back and sets everything right and there's no need. But now that's part of my life. Part of your life is a life of repentance. I say, Lord, forgive me. I've been drawn to the rebellion of the world. You know, the idols are just the localized expression of the world's rebellion. The world rebels against God's standard on money, and we're drawn to greed. The world rebels against God's standard on sex, and we're drawn to lust. The world rebels against God's standard on gossip, and we're drawn to gossip. And yet, we repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So, one of the beautiful realities that we actually have when it comes to repentance is that we actually have a process as Christians, and we can do it just between us and the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's also a process that we do so together as a congregation. And we call that the Lord's Supper. Thank you for listening to Tell It From Calvary. If you feel led to give toward the local, national, and global ministries of Calvary Baptist, please visit CBC nyc.org slash give or call us at 212-975-0170. We hope you join us next time as we continue to tell it from Calvary.